I'm Matt Booker. I'm Dave Laird. And I'm Shazia. There's 26 of me in total, and I'm in here on the Great Concavity. Shazia, welcome to episode 32. It's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. A fellow convexityite. And there yeah, have actually been... Waste. Yeah, there's been actually very few of us uh, on this show appearing. So I did the math today, and you're actually just the third Canadian guest to be featured on The Great Concavity. Uh, the other two were my wife and our friend Amy Peltier. But then I guess if we count Jeff Seavers as like an honorary <laughs> nuxter, then he yeah. would be, then you'd be the fourth. <laughs> He's a dual agent. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So welcome to the show. Uh, Shazia, maybe uh, before I, I introduced you, maybe just break, let's break down your very obscure Infinite Jest reference there. Because uh, I had to look it up. You you sent it to me in advance, but I had to, I was like, oh, this sounds familiar. And then I had to do some digging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it was Let's the... see if Matt can get it. There are 26 of me. Is that what you said? Say mm-hmm. There's 26 of me in total and I'm in here. <laughs> I mean, is that the alphabet? 26 of me? I'm in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the I'm in here when, uh... obviously is hell, yeah. Is that bit when Murat is in the uh, edit house waiting for the interview and he's talking to this addict who says, no, everyone's not real and we're all metal people. If you look closely under the layer of skin, you can see the gear is whirring and there's only 26 of us in a room and everyone else is not real. Like something like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah like that I did really. not catch that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So Shazia, how many times have you, I guess we'll get into this more, but how many times have you read Infinite Jest cover to cover now? Oh, I, I would say three and a half, maybe three four and a half. half. Yeah, yeah, I feel like sometimes I've just started and then dropped off to yeah. read some other Wallace, but uh-huh. I'd say three and a half. Hey, that's pretty good. Awesome. Okay, cool. So Shazia is from Vancouver, BC, which is very close to where I am. And she works there as a poet and a writer and a reviewer. And she's received the Robert Croach Award for Innovative Poetry this year in 2017. She was a finalist for the 2016 National Magazine Awards. She's had pieces uh, published in Quill and Choir, Valum, Metatron's Omega, which sounds like a Transformer, <laughs> the, the Puritan and Canadian Literature. And you had your first chapbook published this year called Prosopopoeia. Mm-hmm. Am I saying that right? Cool. Yeah, yeah. Published by Anstruther Press. And you have a debut book of poetry coming out next year called Port of Being from Insomniac Press. Yeah, cool. Those publications must be so boring to everyone who's no. not a writer in, in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, a poet, poetry writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. You also teach creative writing, and you work as a poetry editor editor for Prism International Magazine. Mm-hmm. Did I cover all of all of the main <laughs> cover all the uh, the CV lines there? Yeah, yeah. Somebody cool, please cool. hire me after May 27th, 2018. Thanks. <laughs> uh, and then more pertinently to the context of Wallace here, you have been a guide for Poor York Summer, Sacred Jest, and the current Infinite Jest online read, Ennet House, which are all dedicated to reading 
uh, Wallace's magnum opus in an online context with people from all over the world. Um, and then Chazzy is also an MFA student at UBC in Vancouver. And a very fun fact is you're currently taking a postmodern U.S. fiction class with past guest Jeff Sievers. Mm-hmm. Uh, very cool. So welcome to the show again, Shazia. Thanks, Dave. Yeah. So you've been a guide for three reads of Infinite Jest. Maybe walk us through like how you came to Wallace and then how you got involved in not just one, but like three separate times of being a guide for Infinite Jest. That's just like, I did it once for Infinite Winter and it was really fulfilling, but like so much work. So I just deeply respect that you've done this three times. So maybe give us a bit of a history on that. Yeah, just got to keep sticking to the big book, right? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but the first time I actually had a reading group experience was with your group, um, Infinite Winter. And mm. I started then and I just read along with you guys and I found it so fun just to, you know, write in the comments and blog alongside it though I fell I fell off about you know three quarters of the way through because somebody started a pale king group and I was just like, oh really yeah. <laughs> I didn't hear about that one yeah I think it was it started um in May or June sometime it was just announced on the listserv mm. did you was that your first time reading Infinite Jest or did you read it previous to Infinite Winter um I'd read it before that yeah I thought so. yeah cool. but my first ever Wallace story that I read was Good Old Neon and just after that it just blew my mind and I had to and just bought everything else and I read it I think, when I was in 21 or 20 or something like that and I just uh just gotten out of rehab oh yeah 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 so, so that's a pretty formative time to hit that yeah no kidding I swear mm. infinite just just like really really helped me through my life at that point because I didn't even know um about Wallace's history or what the book was about I was just you know doing a lot of reading and I was like oh I should read David Foster Wallace because I haven't read anything by him and everyone talks about him I don't know anything mm-hmm. and then I read Good Old Neon without reading his biography or anything about him and it was just whoa <laughs> yeah wow <clears throat> Matt's a Matt's a very very large big old uh, big old good old neon fan as well yeah I, that's one of the stories I go back to I mean I think it's probably his best short story or the one that I would recommend um, Mm -hmm. the most Um, you know it's weird because I don't think of him as a story writer but he clearly wrote a lot of stories and that's the way a lot of writers um, make money right selling stories Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but the 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 group read aspect that goes into infinite jest you know I'm curious to hear you talk about that because I think there's a lot of like group therapy um yeah that that goes into being like in a group read so uh you know i'm i'm curious what you have to say about like what kind of experience you had uh leading one of those groups Mm -hmm. uh when i was with a poor york summer which was guided by phil militich i hope i'm saying his name right but (laughs) phil from ontario and uh we known each other through the listserv and I joined the group with two other guides and that was just so much fun especially because we were all Canadian and yeah that was awesome I love that (laughs) yeah I was writing my post two or three in the morning just like the day before (laughs) it was due and that was so much fun because it wasn't premeditated and I felt like this sense that you know I was guiding people but then I would always end up confusing people (laughs) and then (laughs) Joe Joe, who was another of the guys, Joe DeLuca, he would always like clarify my post the day after when it was his turn to post. It was just very neurotic and so much fun. And 
his yeah. posts were just like rebuttals of your post every week <laughs> like <laughs> sometimes yeah and we oh, all fell behind and that's something i always forget you know when i was uh-huh. reading um guiding edit house i just mm-hmm. fell off and i'm like oh i'm behind on the readings and then a really nice gesture on reddit reminded me it's like it's okay you know you're everyone falls behind and everything and i remembered oh yeah an infinite winter people fell behind and yeah. even in for york summer people fell behind so i shouldn't be like trying to push it on as hard as i can <laughs> yeah no kidding huh so how did you get involved with phil maletic who by the way just got married so phil if you're listening congratulations Congratulations, uh, Phil. Very cool. Yeah, Phil was at the conference, uh, not this year, but last year. So we got to hang out a fair bit, which was awesome. Yeah, how did how did you and Phil hook up? How did he come to ask you to be a guide? Um, I think it was through the listserv that I met Phil. Or oh, you guys met on Okay, cool. Got yeah. You. Cool. I can't remember if I might have known him before, like through publishing and mm-hmm. stuff, but it might have been on the listserv. Yeah, yeah, I remember he put out a, a call for... Um, readers and guides on the listserv and that this was a part of a, a project i think he was doing for his phd i'm not sure but yeah that's right uh is related to online communities and um you know i i thought this is really interesting because i i've um seen these online communities you know or the group reads of infinite just really started with the infinite summer in 2009 after wallace Nine. died and, um, you know, seeing the kind of need for that has been interesting to watch it reoccur because I, mm-hmm. I, I thought, you know, well, people could always go back and just read these posts. You know, they're there. And then, right. you know, there's another one. Let's say there's Infinite Winter and then there's Summer of Jest and then there's, you know, um, Poor York Summer. People can go back and read these. Like, do they but they still want the sense that like I'm reading it right now with other people who are reading it right now. Do you know, Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Like what, what do you, what do you, why is that? (laughs) I think it's just because there's so much to look at and so much to analyze. And it's just so much more fun with a lot of people in the same room, right? Because we're all, or people would take to infinite just are generally kind of lonely and depressed in my experience. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. So it's just fun to, to, you know, make friends and talk and nerd out without having all the social awkwardness of in real life conversation. That's sometimes a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah. There's something about like immediate feedback that I guess is fairly compelling. Mm. That if you don't have any way to do that by reading like old message boards, I'm sure you could glean a lot from it, but you wouldn't have a sense of like the same kind of sense of human connection, I guess. Mm-hmm, totally. Which I suppose is a lot of what Infinite Jest is about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of thematic. As you know, we'll always have these admissions come out like, oh, I can relate to Oren, I can relate to Lens, and it's like, it's all good, we're we're on Reddit, and we're friends forever, so it's it's fine. <laughs> and then you red flag the guy who said he can relate to Randy Lens, <laughs> and you're like, never talk to that guy again. <laughs> yeah, that's not really the point of the book, but... <laughs> Hey, I think there's a bit of lens in all of us. But for the guides, I think it's another challenge, too, um, in that, you know, it can be overwhelming, at least for me, to try to say something new about Mm. the book that, you know, especially because, you know, I wrote a couple of posts for Infinite Summer, and then I think I wrote a guest post for Infinite Winter, and then Summer of Jest, and it's like trying to say something new about it. um, 
that can be challenging too because then if you look go back and look at all of the stuff that's been written it's like you know what is there to say and then i don't know i feel like maybe there is a lot left to say but it's it's hard to find that balance sometimes yeah it's super tiring a lot of the posts from poor york summer or sacred mm-hmm. jest just because it was so difficult to come up with new things all the time but then i found the conversations always made things new so this time mm-hmm. we had this conversation about joel's uh veil and uh someone said something that went into a conversation about dysmorphia which is this sort of ocd related uh disorder where someone has uh, a view of their body that's very um exaggerated so their body wouldn't actually be be disfigured but they would think that it is and that would prevent them from interacting with people and that was something i hadn't considered about joelle's veil before because there's so many speculations about whether she's disfigured or not or did the acid incident actually happen you know like is molly not gonna reliable narrator all that stuff yeah Mm -hmm. oh that's an interesting thought yeah yeah so dysmorphia was one of the new things that i thought about this this reading that's cool um, yeah, like do having done this three times, Shazia, like what is your, I mean, obviously there's the thing where like you want to have some insightful stuff about what's happening in the book to make like, especially first time readers have it make sense. But then, yeah. How do you say something original about that? And then where is like, at what point do you sort of make the poor, the post sort of more personal about yourself or about the ways that what the book makes you think about in your own life, in your own experiences? Like, where do you find kind of the balance? How have you kind of approached that in in your several times at this? Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like Infinite Justice is so personal for me. So I always find myself holding back on how it relates to my own life. But then Mm -hmm. when I did um, Sacred Jest with Emily Hoffman, she Mm -hmm. had this method of reading, which she wanted to, um, she wanted to look at it at Infinite Jest as a kind of sacred text, which is odder than it actually sounds. But the technique was to, <laughs> it was to use this method of reading called um, Lectio Divina. And mm-hmm. it's like a four-part process that's a Benedictine practice of reading. And basically you pick a line at random and then talk about what's going on in the immediate text and then zoom out and relate it to the whole and then see how that applies to your life. So it's always got this personal aspect involved, mm-hmm. which is very, very much like Cole's reading, I find. So that was really interesting, reading up and adjust consciously like that. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I found for me when I was guiding Infinite Winter, I just would tend to write about Canada and like Canadian stuff a lot (laughs) because for me it was kind of like low hanging fruit. But for non Canadians, like, you know, we needed some explanation. So I kind of like tapped into my like, you know, 10th grade social studies uh, history teacher uh, self and just kind of like talked a lot about Canada. So that was kind of a nice like way to make it sort of personal, but also help readers understand this other aspect of the text that they might not have yeah. got. Yeah, I remember your post about that. And I remember also going on a similar trajectory because of your post and watching this mm. movie called Corbo, which is about the FLQ before in the 70s and how oh, yeah. separatist stuff started. Yeah, it was a really good movie. And it was all because of your post. I was like, yeah, I should be thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I guess that would have been harder with uh, Poor York Summer if all the guides are Canadian. You can't. There's only <laughs> so much you drugs. guys can. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's, I mean, that's a good point. I never thought much about that, uh, just a purely Canadian aspect of it. And it's like what you want to see, like speaking to you know, guests we've had on the show who are Australian, for example, they mm-hmm. actually find a fair amount of stuff about Australia in the book. And I was like, really? I never even yeah. thought there was anything about Australia in the book, but there is. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that, that that is interesting to keep it you know, fresh in some ways is like finding all of these different angles that other people see that, um, you know, maybe a typical reader wouldn't. Um, but eventually like, uh, you know, is that, is that, uh, you know, going to be exhausted? And if so, like, I guess as a poet, you know, I'm interested in Shazia and what you think of, like, I think what's not exhaustible in the short term, at least, is like at the sentence level. And like if maybe if you could speak to that or if there's something in the book that is, um, you know, really struck you uh, that, that's memorable at the sentence level. Mm. I didn't pick out a passage, but there's so many. Like I could probably <laughs> just open the book. But I feel like I feel like the, the thing that really draws me as a poet I guess to infinite justice just the precision like there's this obsession with trying to articulate something as closely and as truly and as attentively that I feel myself when I'm trying to write poems like I'm trying to stay true to the conditions of the poem and how it arose and just the structure of things and I find that also in in, uh, Wallace's sentences I was just going to call him David like he's my best friend ever (laughs) (laughs) call him Dave that's fine (laughs) I mean, to me, that's something like on a reread there, I go back to it. There are sentences where it's just like, oh man, I forgot this existed. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and it's probably something like that on every page uh, that I find is just, you know, a quote, quote worthy. Yeah, my, my book has so many pencil marks. I'm trying to ignore them right now and trying to pay attention to the, <laughs> to the text. Matt, to your knowledge, in the in the Ransom Archive, is there any like evidence that Walls did poetry? No, uh, yeah. but I've I never think, heard anything. I think the closest that. thing, I mean, besides his like juvenilia, like his you know poem about his mom when he was in third grade, um, <laughs> that that's pretty good. And that isn't that Pale King from a line from Tennyson's poem. Uh, I think that's right. Um, oh yeah, the opening okay. of the Pale King too. I was going to say those two. There's two sections of the Pale King that were published right, yeah. in Triquarterly as really kind of prose poems, mm. uh, and those that opening thing. You know, I think it's debatable if that was intended to ever be part of the uh, Pale King, and Michael Peach picking that as the opener is kind of like you know, acknowledging that it's one of the most, you know, openly like literary parts of the book that's really just striving for this kind of catalog of names. It has nothing to do with the rest of the book per se. Um, wow, yeah. When I was reading The Pale King, I actually didn't know that the first part was published as prose poems because when I first read it, I was thinking about how much like language poetry it is. Yeah. And in that McCaffrey interview, Wallace talks about, you know, how bad avant-garde is, like bad language poetry, where you have to know a whole bunch of things before you can actually understand what's going on. But when I was uh, reading the part of The Pale King that reminded me of language poetry, it wasn't because it was bad. It was just because, you know, all the um, the way it was written, it was kind of, to me, um, upsetting that cause and effect logic of sentences, like sense-making sentences, I guess. So to me, that was like language poetry was just like refusing closure and creating meaning through the, through the way things are set beside each other instead of leading to each other. 
Uh, I think that's a great point. It's really also trying to use imagery, I think, to stand in for language. And there's an image in that book where, uh, I mean, in that passage where uh, the narrator kicks over a clot of dirt and Mm. there are all of these little passages that are earthworms have eaten it out and trying to make sense of that pattern uh i think is like a little allegory in itself for trying Mm -hmm. to make sense of language and the activity of human beings um it also bothered me that those passages being published in tri-quarterly under the names of i think peoria number nine and peoria number four um Mm -hmm. they they were not acknowledged in the book and in Pale King. So like on the acknowledgements mm-hmm. page, it, it didn't say like, oh, this parts of this had been published in tri-quarterly as Correct. Peoria. And I, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but uh, it should be fixed by now because that, those, uh, those two passages, including the opening passage to me, are the most poetic things he ever wrote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that should definitely have been acknowledged as a you know, whole new career path for me if everything else goes to shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, and he also wrote that uh, book review of the best American prose poems. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. he really um, heaped a lot of praise on one particular, I think a guy's name was John Davis. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but it, it was the best American prose poems that he wrote in a you know, an interesting style of that review and then paid, mm-hmm. paid for an ad of some prose poems in there that he really loved. Mm. Mm, I don't remember John Davis, John Davis or John Davies. I know, I know John Davis also did Garfield. So I'm, I don't want to confuse him. <laughs> him. Uh, <laughs> hey man, you can do Garfield in poetry, right? And <laughs> i mutually exclusive. Anything goes. The sleepy, sleepy, depressed cat. Yeah, it could work. Yeah. Oh, it, was, it was John Davis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, same name. I guess it's a common name, but um, he had a book called The Scrimmage of Appetite, and Wallace paid for an ad of that book. Um, you know, he was pretty critical of the other, uh, uh, the whole genre, I think, of, of prose poetry, such as it is, because it's like, uh, hard to define as like is it a pro- is it a poem or is it prose should it be one or the other is there something that's a third way and he said that um john davis was an example of of someone who was sort of able to do it uh you know really well as a third thing mm-hmm. and i think mm-hmm. that was the only one that he really called out so i wish you'd go back and and read scrimmage of appetite and then edit that in here and prose poetry. Yeah, send me a post recording recording. I'll splice <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, but no, I think that's interesting in that when Wallace went to um University of Arizona for his MFA, and maybe you mm-hmm. can talk about this since you're in an MFA program, um, you know, there's a pretty clear split between the the poets and the prose people the fiction writers and really they didn't have a lot of um typical interaction especially in the classes that they took Uh, Mm -hmm. although maybe in the literature classes not in the writing classes so um he was exposed to and friends with people in the writing program i know who were poets 
Right, like Mary Carr and right. other people. But yeah, at UBC, the MFA program is um, like multidisciplinary, so we're supposed to do three streams, so fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, or another three things if you want. So it's all, there's some interaction, but um, not in the same class, I'd say. So poetry is fairly split off from fiction. But it's interesting that you say that because I'm editing this magazine called Prism International, and um, we came up with a themed issue and we wanted to make the theme liminal so that would include like you know dreamlike states and also cross-genre work that blurs the line between like poems and prose because that's really something interesting to me and that I find doesn't happen in the creative writing program because it you know the separation and boundaries are clearly encouraged so. hmm. well and do you find that you know the one group kind of looks down on the other <laughs> mutual distaste because my, you know, I'm thinking here of another one of my favorite writers, who's Roberto Bolaño, and he started out, you know, as a poet and really considered himself to be a poet first and foremost. Oh, really? And really wrote some pretty nasty things about other fiction writers, saying that, you know, poetry was kind of the highest form of language, and that's that's an idea going back, you know, centuries. Um, sure. But then later on, he's said he switched to um, write prose to make money. And that's also like <laughs> a way of, you know, it's a dig, but it's also like, it's true. And that there's very few like commercially successful poets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't say I feel that animosity in school, but there's definitely a separation. But I feel that animosity in myself, like I'm trying to write mm. fiction right now. And I feel like, one of the reasons I'm starting to write stories or I really want to write stories is just because I want people to read my stuff and understand it. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, in your usual line of work. <laughs> yeah. So I put the poetry aside right now. I'm just kind of trying to write it whenever it happens. Um, but I'm really, really trying to write stories just because I want to, well, just, I've been infected by Wallace. So yeah. <laughs> yeah it's funny. Like a while back you emailed me about like, Hey, I'm in an MFA, but I, I kind of like I'm so into Wallace that maybe I want to like jump ship, <laughs> possibly <laughs> to like just be like do Wallace studies. Like, what? How did you do that? What was your experience? Yeah. I thought that was so so interesting. That you <laughs> yeah, it's still it's still very tempting, especially being in Sievers' class now, when I'm just like feeling so excited reading Pinchon, and it's uh-huh. so good for my writing just to actually read and analyze work instead of trying to generate it yourself. Um, but yeah, I'm still still thinking of jumping ship, although maybe just like another ship next to this ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What um what else are you guys reading in that Seavers class? You said you're reading some Wallace as well? Yeah, we're reading Adult World from Brief Interviews, which <laughs> Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So gonna be I... harrowing. Yeah, and we're reading uh the McCaffrey interview. And we're reading Cosmopolis, DeLillo's, which I'm so oh, excited wow. about. Yeah, I'm going to write on that. Mm-hmm. Have you finished reading it yet? I've read Cosmopolis before, yeah. yeah but yeah. we haven't started reading it for the class yet. Right. Cool. Yeah, cool. Ad- Adult World, I think at least one of the two you know, weird stories appeared in Esquire magazine originally. And I remember, I associate that with um, Gary Shandling was on the cover of that magazine. And uh, if you're a Gary Shandling fan, like it's got to be bizarre to pick that up and then read this 
story, this short story uh, <laughs> from uh, David Foster Wallace about like a porn store. I mean, in a yeah, way, I yeah. guess it fits, but uh, it's it's a weird kind of uh, context that it was originally published in. I'll say that. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but again, not yeah. too many poets publishing in Esquire magazine. <laughs> uh, I mean, no offense, but I'm just saying it's a different like economy. Um, oh yeah, totally. There's absolutely no money in, in poems, you know, like compared to I actually think about money when I send stories and I'm like, oh, if I send it here, it'll be about a $200 thing. Or if I send it here, it'll be a hundred dollar thing. <laughs> but with poems, I definitely don't think that way. It's just, they're just there. Yeah, you probably, poems are like, like 25 bucks. You're losing so money. <laughs> 15. <sometimes>. 15. <laughs> oh yeah. That's kind of bleak, huh? <laughs> yeah. So my magazine pays 40 bucks, so, and it's open to Americans and Canadians, so please send work. <laughs> hey, nice plug. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell us how to get in touch with that. <laughs> <laughs> we got a space for that at the end of the show. <laughs> so, Shazzy, with um, I'm wondering about the most current read, Ennet House. You're doing it. Uh, so the Twitter handle is Ennet House YVR, is that right? Uh, I think it might be Infinite Jest YVR. YVR, which yeah. for those not in the no YVR is the um, airport code for Vancouver's airport. Um, not that I'm an internationalist or anything. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so you guys are almost done. You're, um, it ends on Monday. And I remember seeing when it's, when you guys started it, that you were planning to do like four actual real meetings of people who lived in Vancouver, who were part of the read. Did that ever happen? If so, how did it go? I'm really, I'm really fascinated by that. Well, <laughs> it, <laughs> it didn't pan out. Okay. I think there okay. was about seven or eight people who had shown interest and then scheduling didn't work out and things came up and people had different things to do. Mm. And so the in-person group never worked out, but the right. Reddit group took off and I was surprised by how many people there were online. Like There was 250 people and I was expecting like 10 or 20 or something. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Because originally I wasn't intending to do this. Like I po made a post for when I was um, guiding poor York summer. I made a post on the UBC creative writing forum saying, you know, um, there's going to be an in-person group in tandem with poor York summer. And it starts in 2016 at this date. And then someone from this year saw the post and they said, oh, I'd be really willing to read it. So that's how I started Ennet House. <laughs> mm. Somebody wanted to read it. So. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I think that there were... Um with the original uh, Infinite Summer, there were some in-person groups in uh, mm -hmm. New York. And, uh, you know, that, that's a kind of different experience where you're, you're not just committing to reading something online, but like you're in a lot of ways taking a big risk to go out and like meet some people from the internet. Uh, which, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've done yeah. that. I've done that a fair amount of that myself. And I, I, have always enjoyed it. It's always been um, interesting and it's always been rewarding. Um, but I do think it, it is a, a different beast than just like, you know, reading some posts online or posting your own like blog entries. Yeah. That's like another level of vulnerability, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I felt super responsible. Like when I had an in-person group in tandem with the uh, poor York summer and like three or four people came out and they were all so nervous. And I was like, Oh, I thought I was nervous. And all of a sudden I find myself like, yeah, let's do this. You know, we can go passage by passage and just, uh -huh. so I felt super responsible and people were actually, you know, opening up and 
willing to talk about the things that made them uncomfortable. Like Lens made a lot of a lot of people just like very very uncomfortable and mm-hmm. right that way. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but in in Poor York somewhere, I'd sympathize with Lens, you know, as the only person who's doing drugs in the novel, and I'd, I'd sympathize with him, which I think it was the most commented on post. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I guess him and Hal are and and the Peemster are active users. Yes, yeah, yeah, and Hal. Yeah, some drugs harder than others, I suppose. That is true, and some, <laughs> some people don't see weed as a drug. But def- it definitely is. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially now in uh, like what we're seeing in Vancouver and Victoria, there's just like a million dispensaries everywhere now. And it seems like, I know, like marijuana is not legal yet, but it, you would get the impression that it was if you weren't from here. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I actually opened a dispensary on campus at UBC. So that's that's cool. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, it's straight up legal in some U.S. states. I mean, Colorado and Oregon and probably Oregon, others yeah. by now. But I mean, yeah. it's, that's a different thing to get used to for sure of like, it's legal, but it ain't 100% legal because it's not legal at the federal <laughs> level. Um, right, yeah. So at the federal level, like, disp- I don't know why we're talking about this really, but dispensaries, <laughs> uh, they can't have like a bank account. So they only deal in cash. So oh, I didn't know that. It, it's, I didn't know that either. They still can't get a bank account, so because the federal law prohibits that, so uh-huh. banks won't touch them. Even though it's like the state law says it's cool, the banks won't touch it. So they, you have to deal in cash. Um, and uh-huh. I don't really know what the point of this is, other than to say is like it's in an intermediary state, right? Where, in my mind, it is because I grew up in a certain era, right? And I'm 155 years old that it is <laughs> it is like from the old days of like it's it's illegal, right? And like I wonder what, you know, the next generation of growing up like with you know, a, a lifestyle dispensary down the street is like <laughs> you know, it's probably going to mm-hmm. be a different perception of it being sure legal or not, but Mhm. And it's also, there's so many reasons about like, you know, my friends and I, it's clear that you can just walk into a dispensary and get weed and get your prescription. But then like, what are you supposed to say is your illness? Like if you say anxiety or depression, they're not going to give it to you because, you know, they're going to need more proof. So it's like, how, how do you negotiate that? It's, it's all very sneaky still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know in some states it's, you can say damn near anything and get a prescription like insomnia, like who doesn't have insomnia now and then? <laughs> <laughs> My daughter certainly has it. Oh God! <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> she's five months old. So. That, that that she's not getting a prescription then. <laughs> Is she about just size? <laughs> about whose size? Just size. Just size. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, she's like. Uh, probably five infinite Jess weight wise <laughs> right now. <laughs> How much does infinite Jess weigh? Is it like four pounds? Four point know, something? Man. I think I've seen that. <laughs> I don't know kilograms at all. I'm Canadian, but I refuse to. There's certain <laughs> things, you know, I refuse to switch over from standard to metric. <laughs> Weight's one of them. <laughs> that's that's reassuring to hear. I just assumed everyone there was talking about kilograms and kilometers and stuff. Well, kilometers for sure, but most Canadians we can deal in like feet and inches really well, and pounds. There's a phone I, for that. There's a phone app for that, right? 
Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's like 1,000. I can't deal in anything, so. <laughs> so we kind of talked about this a little bit, Shazzy, already, but like, um, so talking about Wallace's style, and maybe we'll talk a bit about medium here, like, as a poet, you, I like, I've looked at some of your work recently, and, and it tends to be fairly minimalist in style, right? Like, as a medium, you know, one-page poems, things like that. Uh, now, barring, like, the epic, um, what is it that then, like, appeals to you about Wallace's sort of sense of maximalism in, you know, specifically Infinite Jest and The Pale King? How do you see, kind of, like, the the discourse between what you do and what Wallace is doing? What interests you about that? It's really interesting because I've never seen those two things in opposition, but I right. feel like both of them have this, at least when I'm writing poetry, there's this obsession with um, being attentive to things in the same way that Wallace seems to be attentive to the sentence and to mm. telling things in this very patient and wrought sort of way. Mm -hmm. I think it yeah, was the uh, attention, I think, that ties ties both of them together for me, mm -hmm. or the quality of attention. Mm-hmm. Like on the sentence level, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Matt, was it um, was it Nicholas Giacoboni that said that there's not a lazy sentence in the entire book? I think that was him that said that. That sounds right. Yeah. Well, I think you can see a lot of that in in his uh, editing style. I mean, or his yeah. the way that he accepts edits or not. I mean, that's certainly uh, <laughs> visible in the, the Ransom Center. And you know, there's this interview with him. Uh, for Amherst Alumni Magazine about how he's a five-draft man. And th <laughs> that's also very true in that almost everything that's in the Ransom Center has, you know, four or five drafts. And uh, of Infinite Jest, there are some passages that have uh, more than that. And same with The Pale King. There, there are passages that have eight, nine, ten, eleven drafts. And wow. that that kind of attention to the page and that kind of polishing um I, I think it does show some kind of like uh what he also expected out of his students so yeah. uh i know as a teacher he spent a lot of time he did not like a lazy sentence right mm -hmm. if you turned in some lazy sentences you'd clearly not reread or edited or left in typos or um you know had repetitive phrases he was very quick to mark that up wow so what are the drafts like do you think he um did he do it line like rewrite it line by line or does it look like he rewrote the whole section afresh each time both i mean both mm. uh there are some you know lots of whole sections of infinite just that were cut um there were a lot of uh pages that he really labored over and you know he changed the opening several times where for for many drafts of the whole book four drafts or so it was the opening was the professional conversationalist scene where it was Hal trying to communicate with his father mm -hmm. um, you know behind this mask of like not really knowing it's his father and then his father is the one who kind of um, breaks down that communication uh, and and that, the drafts of that scene, I know, uh, were handwritten multiple times. Um, so that, that kind of labor over like what word sounds good, you can tell that he you know, probably read some of the stuff aloud, changed the, the punctuation around to put in mm -hmm. gaps. You know, one of his signature 
punctuation things he stole really from Manuel Puig is the um, the dot the dot dot yeah <laughs> as like yeah. just a pause in conversation or yeah and pinch on yeah. <laughs> and probably going back to like Shakespeare or something, you know, it probably goes <laughs> back, like yeah, yeah, even further. But uh, Cicero, I mean, that that <laughs> kind of attention to you know, how does the book sound? That to me also sounds like something a poet would do. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I definitely read my work out loud. Um, I can't imagine Wallace reading out every page and trying to trying to check, but. Yeah, well. like handwriting each page twice and then word processing it several more times like the amount of time investment there is pretty staggering well the book the book would have been framed so differently if the professional conversationalist scene was first it would have been to me more of like a father-son narrative because it would have been mm. set up that way but the way it's set up now is kind of like very you know solipsistic lonely guy Right. Yeah. yeah, and I think we've talked really about this the on the podcast too but like in one of those drafts um the character in the early draft, the character is not Hal. Maybe we talk about this with David Herring. It was um, David Foster Wallace. And the character's name is David Wallace. And the father's name is James Wallace. And uh, <laughs> he kept it uh, where the father's name in the book is James. Right. So he did not, he, you know, he changed himself out of it, but then kind of put himself back in um, with the pale King. So yeah, I, yeah. I know like when the pale King came out, I was surprised to see his name in there. Like, Oh, he's doing this metafictional thing again. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, that does change the way you perceive the book. I think if the focus is on Hal and his father, um, mm -hmm. but it's also in line somewhat with like uh, Hamlet, which I sure. see very yeah. much as about like Hamlet and his father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, not so much of a question. Uh, <laughs> I've really got to find a way to like end this with like a profound question. <laughs> uh, Maybe like um, okay. So talking about medium and and maximum minimalism, are there like what are some of the thematic things, Shazia, that you try and do in your poetic work that you see? maybe like aligning with Wallace's program or things that are, are totally different. Like, do you, do you find any intersection points yeah, between like your goals just, as an artist, maybe? Just what Matt said about the metafictional narration, that was actually how um, my poetry stuff got started. Like I was actually um, very interested in self-reflexivity and I've been collecting and looking at all these passages of like self-conscious and metafictional narration in, um, in books by authors who had committed suicide. So I was looking at like Suicide by Edward LeVay and how he talks about it, which is an autobiography and just how he talks about himself. And the book is basically like a rehearsal of his suicide, spoken as if it was his best friend who had committed suicide. And then obviously Wallace, I was thinking through that. So then that sort of, it's always been with me. Like Wallace has always been with me as I think through these like, similar themes in my work about mediation and, and suicide and self-consciousness in particular. Mm. So... Yeah, so all of this interest in self-consciousness then just extended out into immediate um, like experience, and I was trying to articulate what that space of like being human and um, non-human, having these human and non-human technological actors in the same space would look like. And so, yeah, just that poem I shared with you guys earlier, um, that was on my friend Rob Taylor's blog, 
it actually clicked together when I remembered something that I think um, Karen Green had said about finding Wallace. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can't that. remember where I said that. Where I when I read that, um, you know, she wanted to place a chair beneath him so that his knees don't hurt when he falls. Oh God. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that in Bow Down? Do you remember? Yeah. It must yeah. have been. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So Wallace has been been very much a part of my work, especially just the the self conscious narration in particular. Is there kind of like a, a geographical um, Vancouver poetry scene um, sort of like theme or like recurring sort of thread of ideas that you see at work among poet like peers in your immediate space? Hmm. Is your work kind of like um, anomaly in, in that group? Is it... I don't know if it will be vain of me to say it's kind of an anomaly or what, <laughs> no, that's but okay. I definitely feel that's like. That's I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the Vancouver feel... scene, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's different kinds of poets, but I feel like a lot of people tend to write about Vancouver as a place, especially with the things that are going on right now. Mm. You know, it's just with housing and rental, and everything's just in crisis. And I'm I'm also sure. writing about those kinds of things too. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the poems that are being written by my peers right now are also kind of doing the New York poetry scene where, you know, referencing friends and this intimate coterie of friends among each other. And, you know, all my friends are on Reddit, so yay. <laughs> so I'll just uh, stick to writing poems about the wall. <laughs> you got a wider international crew that you run with. <laughs> um, it's a very political scene, I'd say. And very definitely- political scene, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially with my... Um, Instructors from Simon Fraser University, like Jeff Dirksen and Stephen Collis, they're doing very political poetry that's kind of influenced by language poetry in the States in the 80s. And also, um, yeah, and then there is, you know, UBC kind of group that's uh, just very straight up lyric poetry in general. This is big generalizations, but I definitely see it as an institutional kind of split in different camps in that sense. Oh, that's cool. Um, Going back sort of to that question of uh, your desire to want to do like Wallace scholarship and maybe change programs or whatever. Um, if you like, what are some ideas that you would want to pursue if you were to say, like, write a master's thesis on Wallace? Like what, what would be, what are like areas that you'd be really interested to explore? Oh, man. <laughs> Have you given that some thought? <laughs> I remember feeling very passionate about just the, you know, mediated experience, which is basically all throughout Wallace um, and just reading more about McLuhan, because I know he's mentioned McLuhan a few times in that McCaffrey interview. And now that I'm reading Pinchon, it's just it's going to have to I'm going to have to do something with uh, Gravity's Rainbow and Infinite Jest because there's so many similarities between both of them. And I think Mm -hmm. Wallace had said he never read Gravity's Rainbow, right? Did he say that? I don't believe it. (laughs) (sighs) Because yeah, he clearly like owes so much to Pynchon. Yeah, I'm surprised. This is the first time I'm reading Gravity's Rainbow, and there's just so many similarities between both the books. Mm-hmm. What are some ones that stand out to you particularly? Um, both the books have this uh, grand corporate structure that influences all the actions happening. So in Pynchon, there's this um, film company that's related to a chemicals company that manufactures this plastic that's used to make the rockets and also a latex suit that's 
um, in porn films with BDSM sex. Um, and then in Infinite Jest, it's, you know, interlaced tell entertainment and the whole bit about syndication and how that filters through different sorts of streams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like a larger geopolitical backdrop and then, and then subtext to that, you have the lives of the individual characters working within that. Yeah, kind of monolithic superstructure kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, like characters taking on different character roles. So there's Tyrone Slothrop in Gravity's Rainbow, who has like two identities: there's Ian Scuffling and is like Max Schlepzig. And then there's Marat and Sleepley and all these, and Joelle and Lucille Duquet. You know, mm-hmm. so various personas just gathering on top of one another. Mm-hmm. You mentioned also in an email that Fantods you found in Gravity's <laughs> Rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Do you you remember the context of that? I'm going to have to pull it up again. Uh, (laughs) But that was actually from Mark Twain originally, right? I did some research. Oh, really? I found it in Pinchon, yeah. And I think the pointer that I found was Mark Twain and not Pinchon. Oh. Just seems very 1970s to me. Like, (laughs) uh, I, I don't know why I associate this with, like, you know, his mom coined a bunch of these words like greebles and stuff. Right. Um, yeah. And the, the howling phantods in particular is like, you can see just anyone who loves language and loves like these, these little one-off plays on words, um, just delighting in being able to use them. And, you know, there was a word Wallace used in infinite jest. And then it comes up later in an interview and he's like, no, I used that word. And he's so proud that he remembered <laughs> that he was able to use a word. And that's, that to me is another thing, like what a poet would do. Like if you are very consciously putting a word in there, you will remember that forever that like you use that mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think Wallace like secretly wanted to like use every word. Yeah. <laughs> like I ever? found the passage. <laughs> Probably ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I found the passage in Pinchon. Should I read it out? Sure. Yeah. Please. Uh, it was always easy in open and lonely places to be visited by panic, wilderness, fear. But these are the urban phantods here that come to get you when you are lost or isolate inside the way time is passing. When there's no more history, no time traveling capsule to find your way back to. Mm. So it's kind yeah, of similar use, usage. Use yeah. kind of similar context, yeah. Huh. Urban cool. phantods. Yeah. Urban yeah. phantods. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe... Um, you know, if Nick Maniatis starts a pension site, he can call it the Urban Phantods. I've got, I was often get the <laughs> Suburban Phantods out where I live. Oh, I bet you do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, it's all Urban Phantods in Vancouver for sure right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So Shazia, you have uh, Ennett House wrapping up here. Do you have, do you foresee any future plans for a fourth Infinite Jest uh, guiding tour? Oh, I, I think I'm actually going to take a break this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, maybe read the book chronologically myself because I haven't done a chronological read yet. Oh, like um, take a map someone has made and like read through uh, mm-hmm. the subsidized time years from one to nine. Yeah, yeah. I've never done that either. Machete order be... almost. I mean, you have to start yeah. with like that scene where jim's father is lecturing him about in arizona in 1960 yeah yeah that's That's like the best one of the best scenes in the book though i think it's It's depressing but it's just like it makes me laugh like the pacing of it is so profoundly well done with 
the way you can see the effects of alcohol starting to happen mm. from start to finish. Mm. It's unreal. And also that bit about annulation reminded me of Pinchon stuff too, because there's so much oh, yeah. about you know, the visibility of the atom and nuclear warfare in Pinchon, and he talks mm. about how um, chemistry and all this chemistry stuff and being split, and that scene, especially with the annulation, is just like you can see um, Jim in Condensa's uh, like <laughs> consciousness just like slowly dissociating from his dad in like various levels and then he finally gets to annulation and he's just totally doesn't care about his dad by the time he gets to there you know mm -hmm. at least that's how i read it i just saw it as like various degrees of separation from from his dad mm. oh very much and, and also just bringing in the marlon brando thing and the, the mixing the kind of pop culture with science and um that that really strong voice again it sound great to read aloud that that voice uh, it's, it's, which is really almost like a uh, theatrical monologue. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so many so, passages in Infinite Jest are unattributed dialogue, right? So it's definitely Wallace. We've been thinking about voice too, just how right. things sound and how you can identify someone just by the things that they say. Yeah, yeah. I was. Um, I've been rereading. Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself in the last few nights, and. There's a part near the beginning where Wallace talks about how he thinks that his stuff read aloud doesn't work very well. And I, w I just wonder about, like, as, a, as someone who, who works with words uh, in, in a very specific way, like you do, Shazia, um, would you, like, take him to task on that? <laughs> You, you know, when I was uh, <laughs> when I was trying to recruit people for the Ennett House group to read alongside in person, um, uh -huh. and every time I had a poetry reading, I'd always read out a passage from Good Old Neon about how it's difficult to articulate things and how, how the speed of consciousness and that passage. Um, and I'd read it over and over again, and and it was just I found myself going so out of breath, like I actually had to practice saying it in the breath to try to say it the way he wrote it, and I was yeah. Like, was, you have to, like, harrowing. do, like, deep-sea diver breath training to be able to, like, inhale that much, much oxygen to read <laughs> yeah. an entire sentence. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I wasn't a Zen master by the end of it, but, <laughs> but it took a lot of breathing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Um, there's also a part in all the, of course, where Wallace says that to read the book well, you have to take at least a couple months. It's like anybody that's that hasn't, spent at least two months reading it hasn't read it well or something like that and i was just thinking about that in terms of the timeline of these of these online reads is that they tend to be like three months right that's about what 75 pages a week works out to um mm -hmm. so well done to uh to phil and mark flanagan and the people who have mapped out <laughs> how we read this book while it seems like wallace would have approved yeah, Based yeah, I actually timeline. stole the infinite winter schedule, but then um, sectioned <laughs> in break weeks. So there would be like a break week of like 10 days just to catch up after every 300 or so pages. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and people oh. appreciated that, they seemed to. But, but people did fall off, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, even as a guide, it's challenging to keep up some weeks, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then you have to rely on uh, like previous times that you've read the book and kind of skim ahead and be like, okay, what's this about? Yeah, okay, I think I could elucidate that a little bit for, for a first-timer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like a lot of uh, ripping off of yourself in previous guides. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> That's cool. 
Yeah, I think as a general rule, the fiction writers don't think much about reading it aloud, uh, and especially if it's your first book. You know, this was not Wallace's yeah. first book, so I think maybe he's a little more conscious of it that the book is going to come out he's going to have to promote it and have to stand in front of people and read something <laughs> and yeah. you know it was curious that he i think mostly read um you know set pieces that could be understood um on their own rather than trying to like talk about a specific plot line so that's <laughs> right. why i know he frequently read uh the video phone portion just because it's funny um, yeah you know, and I think that that can also skew the um, the perception of the book. That if your perception of it is like, "Wow, it was hilarious," and mm-hmm. uh, there's a quote on the blurb on the book that it's like, "Oh, it's really funny," then it might be in for a surprise when you buy this thousand page <laughs> novel and be like, oh, "Where's the jokes at?" Uh, <laughs> you know, but that but that idea about um, uh, you know what what are you um, you know, the novel itself, your perception of it for a writer, I don't know that they're thinking about how it's going to sound or what they're going to read when they're writing it. Uh-huh. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm probably arguing against myself here since I just said the opposite about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> but I, I think in, in a lot of cases, uh, what you hear for people who love Infinite Justice, people who say it sounds like my brain voice. And, you know, when you're silently reading it, it's like, well, that's how I silently perceive the world or I deal with myself or I think of things as well. And then the ability to translate it into a written page is like, that's kind of the holy grail, right? Like if you can do that and people, you know, feel less alone, they feel like, well, that's me too. Uh, Then you've really done, you know, something special but as a writer i I have no idea how you approach that because i I really don't consider myself a writer yeah yeah it's super difficult like i feel like i'm trying to be more conscious of that as i'm writing myself because i i I mean i'm just starting out writing fiction i don't want to write like wallace Mm -hmm. uh just starting (laughs) out but i'm definitely aware of how the narration um really helps with that feeling of closeness like how how it sounds like a brain voice because it's Mm -hmm. um it's like limited limited omniscient so the narr- the narration is just blurring into the character's narration there's almost no gap between the narration and the character's consciousness which is where i find the beauty of it really comes through well i i th- you know what you just said though i think it's interesting because sometimes uh especially writers starting out get contradictory advice there like you know mm. write for yourself and you write you know what feels true to you and uh you you know that's the most important thing, and I we I feel like we see a lot of that right now with writing that feels very confessional. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the opposite is kind of like, well, no, you need to be considerate of the reader, or you need to to imagine that you're writing to someone specifically who is going to read this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then there's a bit of like egotism behind that, which is like, well, then I, I hope millions of people read my words and are influenced by them. You know I mean? Just like that idea that I'm going to project my voice out through the world and I hope that it resonates and every ear is turned towards my vo- <laughs> voice. I mean, that's, that's a little like extreme, but yeah, I mean, you also can't just say, I hope no one ever reads this and it reads like, you know, a diary to yourself. So yeah, right. yeah, because yeah, there's that tension 
Yeah. Wallace I mean, talks about, like, I know that, like, I'm writing this novel and the primary f- function of it is that it has to entertain the reader, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in the first, like, five pages or else I've lost them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in but, that McCaffrey interview, he says something like, to be a fiction writer, you have to be disassociated from yourself or disentangled from yourself or something like that. So uh-huh. there's also this, like, double consciousness going on where you're, like, constantly aware of, you know, your writing and who's going to be reading it. And at the same time, you have to, like, write as if you don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of Canal Scarred. And so I might have to right, do a yeah. separate episode to talk about that. Um, but I, I, I just don't read enough. We'll try and get them on. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't yeah. read enough like uh, poetry, I guess. Um, you know, a lot of the poetry that I return to is stuff that I've already read. And um, yeah, I would love it if you could recommend maybe some poems for people who like Infinite Jest. Mm. Oh, wow. Hmm. I would definitely recommend a book of prose poems by Franz Wright. Um, let's see, I forgot what it's called. Kindertotenwald? That's the one. Yes, that's the one. Kindertotenwald. It looks interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's, it, Franz was, oh, Franz, Franz Wright was also an, um, he wrote a lot about recovery and addiction, and he also has some religious themes in his work, which I think would oh, tie okay. to Wallace. Sure. Yeah, that's come up a few times on this show. See, I've never really read him or his father, James Wright, which I'm, I'm aware of are the father and son pair, very uh, successful poets. I think Franz Wright just died recently. Did he die? Yeah, he died recently. I think a few years ago. I'm not sure. 2015, 2016, something like that. Mm. Um, that that's a fantastic recommendation. Do do you um associate Wallace with other poems or types of poetry? I I always associate Wallace with Dennis Johnson, who's oh, yeah. I guess he started out as a poet, but also as a fiction writer. But it's always in my mind too, with Wallace. Mm. I guess because of the themes. Yeah, and you know that's interesting. Is also Dennis just just died this year, and right. um, I feel like in some weird way Wallace was competitive with him, or uh, resented him in a weird way. I know that he loved Angels. He recommended that novel a lot, um, mm. and Angels is a very bleak novel. If you haven't read it, it's very dark. Uh, but everything Dennis Johnson wrote. Uh, you know, is somewhat bleak <laughs> or, but it's also somewhat like poetic. I think that's a good, that's a good um, connection there. Connection but, point. Yeah, yeah. Because I see like, uh, you know, Dennis Johnson was a recovering drug addict uh, mm-hmm. and wrote a lot about that. And I, I think there's some, even some quote where Wallace says that, you know, some recovering writers use it as material and they get a pass and i was like Mm. what that's kind of exactly what wallace did (laughs) you know he used his history with addiction as material for a book and Mm. but he also i think the alcoholics anonymous kind of code of anonymity kept him from speaking about it too much Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. or his own personal experience and i think he kind of took issue with writers who um 
put themselves in the forefront of it. You, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. 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 But then I guess the counterpoint to that could be like, was it Big Craig who at Granada House said Maybe. like, yeah, it was like pretty obvious that he was here just like mining material yeah. for his writing. So like, yeah. maybe if Wallace didn't use his own direct experience, he was using that of others potentially. Mm-hmm. Is, is that another? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On. And then he also transcribed stories at AA meetings and NA meetings and oh, then yeah. used them in the book too. <laughs> yeah. yeah is there something disingenuous about that? Like I won't use my own, but I'll use that <laughs> of others in my group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he also recommended Incognito Loungers. I think is uh, Dennis Johnson's yes. first book of poetry. Yes, you're correct. Yeah, he was like, this is the best book of poetry or something for a salon or something like that. Yeah, again, I think it's something he was he was competitive with in a weird way that he never acknowledged. I mean, and Dennis Johnson got a lot of uh, recognition in a way that Wallace, at least during his lifetime, didn't. Mm. Um, mm. And maybe I'm incorrect about that but i mean dennis johnson won the national book award and uh you know was on on a sort of different level where you know jesus son was like made into a movie Mm -hmm. um i I think that 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 needs to be explored more we need to talk more about this dennis johnson thing Yeah, I just started reading Jesus' Son because my uh, fiction prof, John Vigna, he recommended it to me because obviously I'm just mining my experience with addiction and depression from my stories. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, you should really read Dennis Johnson. I was like, fine, Wallace recommended him, I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Seems good. Well, in a way, I think that's somewhat to be expected from someone like Wallace who grew up in, you know, in the Midwest and lived a pretty like upper middle class life and, you know, didn't have a lot of external forces to struggle with besides uh, substances. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, his relationships with his family or his relationships romantically that he also mined that, you know, and so that's, but it's like, what else is a writer to do? You know, what else, mm-hmm. unless you take like the William Volman approach where it's like, you're going to go to Yugoslavia and Afghanistan <laughs> and, yeah. you know, Antarctica, and you're going to be like a world explorer. I think mm-hmm. Wallace is very much saying the world is, you know, in your bedroom with a sheet <laughs> of blank paper, you know, to write about the day. Like that's, that's uh-huh. another way of seeing the world, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And the, the things that he pays attention to, just like conversations, you know, just with with the, you know, with the father and the mother and the relationships and the, you know, Joelle and Oren, it's so real. Like that's that stuff's necessary, right? To talk about in fiction, it doesn't have to be something so grand and epic all the time because this is mm-hmm. the real stuff that matters. Well, in in the 1980s too, whenever. Uh, you know, Raymond Carver style of minimalism was dominating fiction scene. I mean, that's when, um, you know, Bruman's system came out in that world in 1987. And that idea of, you know, a gritty, real voice and circumstance was still somewhat new in highbrow fiction. And, you know, they were coming from the world of like John Updike and John Cheever and, Mm. uh, you know, Philip Roth, and they did not write about trailer parks and they did not write about the, the <laughs> dive bar and, mm-hmm. um, you know, reading Dennis Johnson, reading, um, 
you know, e- even what Wallace was trying to do with different voices while he was in the MFA program, I think it's coming from that place of um, intentionally against, you know, the dominant style of literary fiction in America up to that point. Yeah, the proper realist stuff, yeah. Cool. Well, I guess that brings us to the final thoughts portion of the evening. Shazzy, is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you were hoping to, uh, anything that occurred to you while we were talking that, um, that sparked an idea, any, uh, any concluding remarks? Um, I want to ask a question. Can you see the edits and all the drafts online or you have to go to Harry Ransom to do that? There's a fair (laughs) amount of this stuff that's online from the Pale King. And I, I don't know if there's much from Infinite Jest. I think that, you know, that's something that uh, came up the other day in relation to Oz Wallace when we were talking, uh, when I was talking oh, with yeah. them, is that their question of like, when are the Ransom Center going to put more online mm. so that people, you know, around the world have access to these materials. And it's just not the way literary archives t- typically work, but I hope that with Wallace that they do um get permission and rights to put more, um, you know, scanned pages online, but there's, there's tens of thousands of pages there. So it, it would mm. take a while to do them all. Mm. Can you justify a trip to UBC Shazia to go down to the ransom center for any of your work? Do you think? <laughs> I am definitely going to try now, whether I get into the States cause I want my Muslim names. That's another problem, but, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to try at some point, I think. Cool. Nice. Oh, the other thing I wanted to bring up was uh, Greg Jackson. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not familiar with this writer. Matt, are you familiar? No, I haven't read him. Uh, I saw that story he has in a VQR that's about tennis. Uh, have you read that story? Can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah, he's he's amazing. Um, he put out this book called Prodigals. I think it was put out this year. And um, I think I just came across him when I was just on the internet and looking at Granta and I came across the first paragraph. I only read the first paragraph because the rest of it was locked um, from this story called Epithalamian about this divorce couple. And it was just so convoluted and attentive. <laughs> and I was like, this is so messed up. I just have to buy the book. And so I bought it. <laughs> convoluted and attentive is what sells you, hey? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Yeah>. Interesting. <laughs> And so, yeah, I bought the book. And then when I started reading the book, there's a story called Serve and Volley Near Vichy. Mm-hmm. And it's basically about this uh, famous tennis player. His name is Leon Descoteau, who lives in the rural area of France. And this couple goes to visit him. And um, they wake up in the middle of the night and uh, they find each other playing tennis with no one but themselves in like the three in the morning. And then Leon Descoteau films them and then sends them a VHS tape of them playing tennis. And the tape that he films is all his like signature moves of the match that he won and that made him give up tennis ever after. And it's just very, very Wallacey and Infinite Jesty all over it. <laughs> I'm cool. sold, man. Now that this book yeah, sounds <laughs> great. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, it looks it looks amazing. I'm I'm definitely gonna check this out. Yeah, uh-huh. and when I was reading an interview with the Greg Jackson, people had apparently compared him to Wallace, and he said he's influenced by him. So, yay! Oh, wow. Cool. We will link to that story in the show notes, for sure. Great. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on tonight and talking with us, and uh, best of luck with your your writing on, on your own, and uh, thanks for all the work that you've done on behalf of people reading Infinite Jest, especially for the first time. They, it really does help to have a guide, I think. 
Yeah, Absolutely. for sure. You guys have been my guides too. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Shazia. Yeah, and we also want to wish you uh, all the best luck with Jeff Seaver's class. And uh, we hope you get, you know, a sparkling A out of it. We'll, we'll, we'll try and put in a good word for you, Jeff, <laughs> in, in the back channels. <laughs> Shazia, if people want to check out uh, some of your work, um, get in touch with you through Twitter and things like that, where can people find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Shazia underscore R. And my book is on Anstruther Press. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. And if you um, want to find uh, Matt and Dave on Skype, it's Matt Booker 2015 and D <laughs> underscore Laird. <laughs> yes, you can you can add us. Um, Go for it. A, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that plug, Shazia. You're welcome. Cool. <laughs> and uh, if people want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Concavity Show, and we're Concavity Show on Instagram as well. If you want to email us, we are concavityshow at gmail.com. And speaking of emails, Matt, um, I got an email from uh, someone here who lives in Victoria named Hannah Yoon Henderson, who reached out uh, in, I think, in August about just getting together and having a beer and talking about Wallace. And I was like, great, there's kind of an enclave of people who have met before. So I got in touch with uh, Tim Persone and uh, Christopher Douglas. And turns out Hannah was a student of Tim's currently. Um, and so the three of us, uh, and another friend just got together this week, went out for beer and Hannah told me that in the summer he discovered our show and listened to every episode in like two or three days on like a huge wow. bit. So mad. I mad do not recommend that. That's not the way to go. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask him like, how do you, how did you see the progression of our show from like episode one to present? Have we improved? Uh, hopefully the sound quality is better, at least. <laughs> Things like that. I, I, yeah, I don't even really want to talk about it, to be honest with you. I just put these out there and then just move on. Tomorrow's a new day. We'll talk about something else tomorrow. This is great. Awesome. Cool. As usual, we want to thank Robin O'Neill for her art. And we want to thank the band Parquet Courts for their song, Instant Disassembly. And... Unfortunately, by the time this episode comes out, uh, Robin O'Neill's book tour in Texas will be over. But Matt, she's in your hood on the twentieth, and um, I'm going. I think you're gonna go, gonna go meet Robin and hang out, get I'm her book. Go. I'm gonna go. I'm very jealous. It's gonna be in a good very times. Good. I'll take a picture. Cool. We'll put it put it online. Yeah, that'd be great. Excellent. Very cool. All right, Shazzy. Oh, can I do so one more thing? Yeah. Absolutely. Shout out to my friends on Reddit. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Any specific uh, name drops you want to do? Yeah, especially to A High Time. A High Time. That's, that's a good thematic <laughs> I'm name. I'm called T H Y M E. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Reddit. If you want to add me on there as a user, tag me or something, I'm, I'm on there. So. Oh, I'm Concavity Show on Reddit. I'm just <laughs> Matt Booker. <laughs> I post. I, uh, so- Occasionally in the R Austin subreddit. So, oh, what's what's that on about? It's mostly about the chilies at Forty Fifth and Lamar Streets. So <laughs> That's it's amazing. A, it's an inside joke. <laughs> oh, nice. I sometimes post on the Netrunner Reddit uh, under username Concavity Show. So shocker. Yeah. Right. Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Shazzy. It's been great having you on. Welcome. Bye, guys. Thanks, Kate. Take care.
I'm typing this is probably just blowing the mic, right? <laughs> Wide <laughs> open. I'll just cut this. Though. It's fine. <laughs> I'll make it sound like you had the answer. The answer instantly. <laughs> we do this all the time on the show. Okay, good. I don't feel so unPhD like anymore. Oh yeah, it's like the opening line of Good Old Neon. Like my whole life, I've been a fraud. That's like that's the whole premise of this show. Yeah. Is uh, we just cut <laughs> cut things when we don't know the answer right away, and then we just make it look like we knew it. Right, Matt? 